0: Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. This series is brought together by GPAC, UNOY, and CSPPS. Each episode will bring to you a different peace builder and their personal story. In this season, we dive into the topic of inclusivity. How do we meaningfully bring this concept beyond tokenism? How can we truly involve women and youth in peace building? Young women and men still suffer from stereotypes, myths, and policy panics that harm their agency and affect realising their full potential for peace. The evidence is clear. Development is not sustainable if it is not fair and inclusive. Our efforts to build and sustain peace need to be democratised to include the communities most affected. Young people are our best chance in succeeding In order to break the status quo and make the world a better place, we need gender equality. The fantastic phrase, women's rights are human rights, must become the spine of all our political work. We are here today for another episode of the Peace Corner podcast. And today we're going to dive into the topic of youth, voice and agency. Um, Today, we have uh, Anne de Graaf, who's um, a lecturer at uh, Amsterdam University College. Um, She's also the Chief Diversity Officer of the University of Amsterdam and an author of over 80 books published in 50 languages and have sold over 5 million books worldwide. Um, The first question I would would like to ask you is, what motivates you to carry your role as a peace builder?
1: It's funny you should ask that because that's a question I often ask the people that I interview or research, but no one's ever asked it of me. (laughs) Um, I think it's twofold. I come from what we call in social sciences a low socioeconomic background. So in my family, there weren't very high expectations, let's put it that way. And I graduated from a high school where 720 people graduated and only three of us went to university out of state and for me then education opened up the world and got me out of a very bad very dark situation so I think I've always been watching for the people who aren't represented and who don't have a voice and then couple that with an experience I had when I was researching um, some books and I was in a refugee camp in Western Tanzania with Congolese refugees and you know, smart, uh, uh, really <laughs> fantastic young people. Actually, it was a university that it had to close because of the war and so even the professors were in the camp and they were conducting classes for the 52, 000, there were 52,000 people and half of them were young people and they were conducting classes with no resources and the classes were so good that the Tanzanian villages were sending their children to the refugee camp for this education. and. Those things meshed together, I think, have fortified my um, motivation to not so much speak on behalf of young people, but to open up listening spaces for them. And before I was in academia, I was visiting a lot of post-conflict countries. I've been in every country in sub-Saharan Africa and Liberia and Iraq and Lebanon and Bosnia. And those interviews that I conducted from my books there convinced me that young people are um, are not only stakeholders, but they're important actors in the peace building. And, and they also shape conflict, but they also shape peace building. And yet there's so little research being done on, on this issue that uh, those things all came together. And I don't know, youth agency and voice just seems to be my filter. Mm-hmm. And if something ticks all three of those boxes, then I, I try and say yes and then see where it leads me.
0: Um, so basically your um, research for your books pushed you to go back into um, university and do a PhD on the topic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was writing all these books and uh, at some point I'd written a adult novel uh, and one of, the, one of the characters was a child soldier and his voice was based on interviews that I'd had with former youth combatants. And then so that novel was published and I was... Uh, giving a reading about it at a university here in the Netherlands and the students were so engaged and so on fire so we had an amazing discussion and afterwards a friend said you're glowing you need to pay attention and I thought you know what I'm going to do a career change and so in my 40's I decided to go back to school I still had to get a masters and then I went and got a PhD also um, in peace and conflict studies, so that I could teach. And I've only been teaching for 10 years, uh, so some of my colleagues who are my age have been doing it for 30 years. But I, uh, I love it, I absolutely love it, and I'm so grateful that I've found something in my life that gives me so much joy and fulfillment, mm-hmm. So I'm, that's combining the best of all my worlds, really, teaching and doing research in this area. Because in my writing, indeed, I kept coming up against the same questions. And so that's why I I thought if I go back to school, I might find some answers and they were questions like, why is a child worth more in this part of the world than in another part of the world? And why aren't young people uh, given a place at the at the peace building tables? Uh, I don't have many answers, but now I do have a framework to hang my questions on. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, speaking about your PhD, um, I would like to dive into some of the main questions that it um, that your research addressed mm-hmm. and uh, I would like to ask you specifically uh, with relation to voice, agency and youth, um, how do you think that voice enables youth to claim agency in a, within a divided society or within a society in conflict, let's say?
1: Well, it, it goes back to the 70s. One of the feminist theories was uh, standpoint feminism and... They asked the question, Where are the women in international relations? And when you ask the question, you see the women, and the next thing is you hear them. You see them as diplomats' wives, or as prostitutes, or as working in the kitchen. And, and then once you see them, you can hear them. So I took uh, gender and I transposed it into generational theory. And, and so I asked the question, Where are the young people? Where are the children? And we see them then as uh, youth combatants, or as uh, street children, or as factory workers, or as students. Uh, And once you see them, then you can open up a space to hear them. And when we hear youth voice, then they automatically start exercising agency. Because either we ignore it, or we take it on board, and the people in power, decide what level young people will be allowed to participate. And there, and my research shows that the greater amount of participation, the less chance of violence due to the so-called youth bulge, or even high youth unemployment in a post-conflict country. That when young people are involved in the peacemaking process, that peace is more likely to hold. Um, and it makes sense, but it's just uh, young people are often viewed as risky. Uh, and ignorant, but you know, I like to say, how many risky and ignorant middle-aged people do you know? <laughs> and my students always put up their hands. So you know, it works both ways. But they they really so. That was my research was to show that um, there's a benefit for the entire society when young people are are, are given a voice and, and exercise agency.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you were mentioning, youth, um, because of this youth bulge, um, youth in like security discourse are often conceived of as this threat or as potentially radicalizable. Let's say, yeah. um, what uh, is your opinion on this, and what ways can we address this issue and let's say reverse the frame to kind of conceive of youth as a peace dividend instead of a threat.
1: Well, so the youth bulge is often only framed in terms of unemployment statistics for young people. And if there's high unemployment among young people in a place where there's a a large population of young people, then automatically the assumption is they're going to be hanging around, causing trouble, um, inciting violence. And there's a flip side to that coin. And that is that if there's a a large youth population, then there's also a, a great source of creativity energy and uh, and ideas and and this is shown in research also that young people often have ideas that don't cost much are elegant and are unusual and uh, this can make a a huge difference so for example at the end of the war in Sierra Leone uh, there were so many adults that had been killed in the war that the 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 youth combatant commanders were invited to participate in the peace building. So these were leaders who, who were leaders in war and became leaders in peace. But as soon as they had established a framework for the reconstruction of Sierra Leone, they were marginalized and then the politicians took over. But, and that's, that was a lost opportunity because Sierra Leone is one of the few places where we have research that shows that uh, youth peace builders really can uh, make a mark but we're seeing it more and more now thanks to social media that young people have claimed that voice we see it in climate change and in many issues that young people sometimes under 18 are are having a voice and creating agency so it's a it's a sort of it's a d- dynamic that that goes hand in hand
0: and how can we ensure then that these voices are heard where it matters and that they they let's say are allowed to have an influence and Mm. I know, they're used to make positive change in a way.
1: Well, it all comes back to power dynamics and who, who's in power and who has the voice. So at the University of Amsterdam, for example, in 2015, there were protests. Building Administration building was occupied uh, by, by students, but also by faculty who were demanding change. Uh, it's not a comfortable process, uh, but sometimes if a marginalized group isn't being heard, and I, I consider young people in some situations to be a marginalized group, mm-hmm. then they have to step forward and demonstrate and, be, and protest. And then sometimes that's a step in the direction of being heard. Now being heard is, is just a, an initial stage. After that, then it's a matter of, um, of participating. And the, the highest form of participation is uh, going to young people and saying, what do you think? and then just letting them take it and run, run with the idea. But too often we'll have uh, one yeah. young person in a management team as a sort of token. Uh, so the, 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 you asked what are the things that can be done uh, is for people in power to become conscious of the rich contribution and actually the necessity of opening up these listening spaces for young people. So within schools, these are student councils and I'm working with other universities are hesitant to give this agency but I'm you know showing them the benefits of it and it it really is just a win-win situation because then also we uh, enable and empower uh, future leaders so that they they feel that they they belong and that they have a contribution to make and you mentioned radicalization and you know 15 years ago we thought that people who were being radicalized were uh, poor and uneducated but now we know better they're often um, middle-class and well-educated the problem is that they don't feel that they belong in the society and and they feel and they've been labeled as a loser for whatever reason so if you have a space for youth participation and they're exercising agency then these young people are going to realize that they do have a contribution to make because the people who radicalize young people say to them, no one wants you here, no one appreciates you here, uh, but come join us and you will count, you will matter, you will create something new and very special. You know, you're important to us. And that's something that our society has to learn to say to all young people as well.
0: And uh, you mentioned before that um, often young people are, or in general marginalized groups, are brought to the table in this tokenistic manner. Um what, if at all. if at all, if at all uh, yeah. yeah like if if we're lucky, let's say they're included to the table in a tokenistic manner. um how can we go beyond this tokenism and how can we ensure that um, peace building is meaningfully inclusive?
1: uh well, by having more people from those groups, so for example, uh, people or or lecturers education, educators assume that you know if you've if you've got four. Uh, let's say, four black students, and you've got four student groups, then you put one black student in each group, and, and that's diversity. But that isn't how it works. You need to keep those four together, because then they feel uh, empowered and safe, and they have each other to reinforce each other, to actually voice the ideas that they have. So the same is true for, for young people. You don't just have one, you, you get a small group of them. And then you have to you have to prove that you're willing um, you know, so they have agency and they have a project and the project falls through, you know They learn how to make decisions and how to take responsibility for those consequences But it's also about holding the people in power responsible because uh, people don't like to give up power They won't give up power unless they're forced to and until they they go through a crisis or and Unless they're convinced that there's benefits to it. So we need to kind of sell the idea that young people who choose to engage in these issues uh, bring something to the table that's worth having. What, what they bring is that golden goal within the peace-building world which is sustainable peace. That that lasting peace is the thing that everyone aims for and it's like this huge dream that negotiators work toward and politicians promise um, but it's practically impossible to achieve and, and the only way that we can more fully understand the complex dynamics of peace building is to get as much information as possible. And that means having young people at the table informing us on their issues. For example, I was in Liberia uh, at the end of the, the, the wars there, and I was interviewing former youth combatants, and they were saying to me, and these were smart, smart young people who had. who could speak a couple different languages and they'd managed to survive a war. But they were smart enough to know that they couldn't survive peace without certain skills. And one of the skills was how to read. And because the schools had been closed for at least a generation, all these 20-something young men didn't know how to read. And so they were desperate to learn how to read. But the schools mostly stayed closed in Monrovia and outside of the city because the people who were qualified to be teachers were hired by the UN and by NGOs, and there they got good salaries, much better salaries than they would as teachers. And so most of these young men just went to Cote d'Ivoire, to the Ivory Coast, to fight in that conflict because uh, that was something they knew they could do and they could do it well and they could survive. But this was an example of how, if young people's voices had been heard, then policy would have changed, the schools would have opened and we could have kept them within a peace, uh, a post-conflict situation and, and and they could have helped build the peace in Liberia But too often people don't even I mean they just focus on collecting the weapons and As a first step instead of putting together focus groups and saying what what do what do you want? What do you yeah. need? yeah.
0: Um, speaking about um, youth combatants Um, as you said, many of them not having the skills and not having the possibility to learn skills went off to other conflicts because that's what they knew, let's say. Um, Often also for child soldiers and youth combatants, there's an issue that when they try to return home, they're not um, accepted anymore in their their communities and they're even marginalized and stigmatized. Um, During your research for your books, what is your experience of this? And you think that might be some other reason why they... Um, they are pushed to go to look for other conflicts, let's say.
1: Yeah, so young people um, often take care of each other when no one else is, is doing it for them. And so that's what my research shows. Because, and also uh, we tend to we tend to frame young people in either as what I call the lion or the lamb. So either you're extremely a monster and you're abhorrent and you're an animal, or you're this sweet, innocent angel, um, and there's very little room for, for nuance in, in how young people are, are framed. So, uh, former youth combatants are seen within their, their own societies, especially if the people in those societies are not well-educated, as animals. Um, and even though they might have been forced to kill or forced to do things, uh, that doesn't matter, and even if they had to do these things in order to survive themselves, it doesn't matter. They're they're heavily judged, and uh, and people forget the fact that there were no adults around to protect them, so they had to do what they needed to do to protect themselves. So when the conflict is finished, often indeed they can't return back to their communities. Communities don't want them. They don't know what to do with them, and 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 they're deeply traumatized. Maybe they're drug addicts. Maybe they've been sexually abused. Uh, they've witnessed horrible things, maybe even cannibalization. So, you know, what do you do with someone who is so broken? What happens in real life is they often end up taking care of each other. I I found a group of uh, former youth combatants who, were, who had started a pizza restaurant in, in Mwanza, and, you know, they just figured out that one of them could cook, and one of them had a sweet smile, and one of them could keep the books, and this is what they did. And and I found another group where they had started a, a football team together. And, um, But this is often what happens. You know, When you look also even at our schools and, and our dormitories, when there's problems, it's often the students who take care of them and take care of each other, eating disorders or social safety. So it, it, it's a big problem, and I, I think the UN, I know the UN is aware of it, but you know, in a post-conflict situation, most, most of the time they're spending all their time and energy on, as I said, on the weapons and and trying to get the warlords to come together and, and talk and form a government, but uh, um, just as there's growing attention for women who've uh, been raped during a conflict and how that should be framed, there's also growing attention for how, how young people can be rehabilitated and but, but they need to be listened to first of all. And often what they want is very practical and easy to give. They want to learn how to read. they They want to be able to make a living. Um, and those skills are uh, are often very easy to transfer.
0: And within um, your role as a teacher, maybe also within your role as a chief diversity officer, um, what do you think that uh, inclusivity means for you in your position and um, with your given responsibilities for this position, these positions?
1: Yeah, inclusivity is tied with uh, voice and agency uh, somebody has said that um, it's not about uh, being invited to the party uh, it's about helping organize the party <laughs> that's inclusivity so you know uh, and diversity is such a, has become such a terrible word I, I don't even like it anymore and it's part of my title because it means so many things and a lot of people they just check the box of diversity and go back to telling their jokes and Um, which offend people or have a terrible impact. So inclusivity is about creating a space where people's voices are heard and where they can exercise agency. That's what it means to me. I mean, you'll find a thousand different uh, definitions of it. It's asking the question, who are we missing? And whose voices are we not hearing? And, And why is that? And how can we go find these people? And often they're frustrated they're angry uh, they're hurt they're in pain uh, they they've given up they're cynical so now you have to create a space where you can say you know what you say really matters and, and you can co-create this this new policy this new future this new future for this school you know we need you it's it's not it's not about here I am to help you it's exactly the opposite would you please help me so, so that's what I do: is I listen to a lot of different kinds of people, and I invite them to uh, to co-create. You know that they come to me and they say, "Here's a problem. This and this is happening," and I say, "Well, what do you suggest? What do you propose? And how can we work together to make this happen? How can I help facilitate this?" Mm-hmm. It's very exciting, and because it's the University of Amsterdam, and because we, it's the city of Amsterdam, and because we have a tradition of youth involvement and participation, it's. It's, it's thrilling to have such a great pool of young people who want to be involved and who have terrific ideas. And often, you know, the, the deans or, or the, the executive board will say, okay, this is how we need to do it. And then I'm listening and they're listening. And the students say, actually, you might want to try this and this and this first before you tackle that. And we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it, it just works. It's a win-win. Hmm.
0: So yeah, um, focusing on your role as a teacher, it's um, really interesting to hear how um, you moved from doing your research on these topics to then wanting to teach again. Um, And then how do you see um, your role as a teacher and education in general as contributing to um, inclusivity in a society and also um, diversity with this regard?
1: Well, I see education is the golden ticket it's it's the way out for it's the answer to so many uh problems it's it's the way out of poverty it's it's the way for uh people to develop to their full potential to flourish and to live a meaningful life with dignity so i'm grateful that in the netherlands uh people can pursue an education and not be hindered uh by a lack of wealth in, i come from the us and uh, there, as you know, students are yoked with terrible debt. Uh, parents have to take out a second mortgage. And often people don't go to university because they just simply can't afford it. So education is key. And I made a conscious choice because with my travels and the interviews and, and the books, I took a step back and I thought, okay, how do I want to spend... How can I most effectively spend You know, the next season of my life? And I thought education is the way because... Um, we get the students on board and then they have a ripple effect and go on and have careers and they have other, you know, they have a ripple effect and even more so than my books, which sold poorly or moderately at best. So now, I mean, I have former students who are in Niger and in Kinshasa and in Nairobi and who are working in peace building. So I try and inspire the students with the idea that's, what they have to say and what they want to do is important and can make a difference and for many students this is the first time that they've heard that message and they start to dream and then they realize that they they can get a masters they they can work in the field or do research or or teach and some of my best ideas have have come from students and i've worked with students also on on books and research but but I've also learned from them. I mean, the idea to apply for the chief diversity officer job, for example, came from a former student, and I was arguing with her, and I said, no no no, it needs to be a person of color. And she's like, that's not going to happen. And we need a bridge builder, and you know, and you need to do this. And and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> thinking about it, wondering about it, and then I went to good friends of mine uh, in uh, in Southwest who. Uh, come from uh, the African diaspora, and I, I tried it out on them and, and they said, look, we don't care what color you are as long as you try and get the job done and make the university more accessible to our kids. So then I thought, okay, maybe maybe I do have something to contribute. And I think, and that's the key, is with education, I can inspire young people with the idea that they do have something to contribute, that everybody has something to contribute. And it's such a privilege because now I'm actually... All my worlds have come together because I'm teaching a class on peace building where I take students to Kosovo. And then we uh, study peace building, peacemaking, and peacekeeping. And we see how theory and practice interact. And it's, it's amazing to watch the students... You know, they think that there's a right and there's a wrong and there's good guys and bad guys. And then they hear the perspectives of one side of the conflict and then they hear the perspectives of the other. And they're like, but how can both of these truths be the case and how does that work and, and they you see them struggling and actually growing to a point where they can accept conflicting perspectives which is the key to peace building
0: so in your experiences working on the, in the field but also um, relating that to your experiences working with uh, more um, policy oriented work um, such as in your position of the chief, chief diversity officer Um, Obviously, um, there's been some commitments with regards to policies on the international level with regards to inclusivity and diversity and peace processes. Um, What is your experience of the relationship between these, let's say, grand policies and um, frameworks um, and what actually happens uh, at the grassroots level in these local, uh, local communities and contexts?
1: Well, I think I'll refer to something that I um, did during for my research for my PhD. So I did my fieldwork in South Africa, and the reason for that is because the South African Constitution uh, is the most inclusive uh, in the world. Actually, you know, never mind the continent of Africa. So it's all written down. It's it's all on paper, um, and when Nelson Mandela came to power one of the first things he did is he set up these focus groups for young people around uh, the country and then politicians and uh, social scientists were sent to these focus groups to collect uh, qualitative data about what are young people's concerns uh, and what were their ideas and so I mean he he created these spaces so they could literally co-create a new nation because Young people are always, you know, framed as the future generations, but that sounds nice, but you know they rarely have uh, a say in what their future is going to look like. But Mandela was wise enough to know that that in order for for that to to become true, he needed to actually listen to them. So all this data from these focus groups came together, and they um, they they incorporated within the constitution and within the, the legal framework of South Africa specific laws that had to do with children, um, children's laws, children's acts. Uh, so that, and and many of it, much of it came from the Convention on the Rights of the Child. But it was like they had the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which they uh, ratified, and then they uh, surrounded that with a supportive structure, which was uh, legal and judicial. So it was, it, it was the best possible scenario for opening up a, a way for young people to participate in policymaking. But as what often happens, you get a disconnect between the the rhetoric and the reality. So even though it all looks great on paper, it's not happening in reality. And that was what my research was looking at, was how big is this disconnect? In, in what areas do we see it? And so there were pockets, and that's what I call it in my PhD, pockets of... Um, of areas where young people were bringing on board and they were participating in changing policy. So there might be a community, for example, within a corrupt municipality, and and the politicians were taking the money that should have been used for providing clean water. And the community had been protesting this and nobody was listening. And then they used the CRC and they got their young people to protest about this and that caught the media attention. And so the media started uh, you know, shaming, naming and shaming the politicians. And eventually uh, they were thrown out of office and the new municipality leaders came in and they got their water. And so it's just one example of how when things are framed in terms of youth agency and youth rights, uh, the whole community benefits from that. So, and because they, the South, Afri- South Africa has it all in order and on paper, they can have court cases. And so there was also a um, legal aid uh, organization that I worked with who provides uh, free legal aid to children who were taking their municipalities or their schools or their teachers or their politicians or even their parents to court. And the laws are in place. So now what has to happen is a, a body of precedence has to take place. And then you you'll see the norms and values shifting, and you'll see things changing. I mean, for for example, um, uh, uh, social safety is such a huge issue because of the AIDS pandemic, and so and now it's it's a normal thing for ten and eleven and twelve year olds to be given a very uh, very articulate lessons on on condoms and on how to say no and how to travel in groups together. And uh, teenagers are taught to watch each other's drinks so that somebody doesn't spike the drink and but this has become a norm now in South Africa and and that's how that's how culture changes but so yeah so i can't really i can't give you a golden a golden rule because every every culture is different but there unfortunately there has to be a crisis before the the people in power are are willing to share this power but there's enough crises going on around us where i think this is going to be happening more and more and because of social media we see the ideas and what young people are organizing and and what they're proposing and a lot of it most of it makes sense and so then the next step is to say well we need to include them um, even even the UN is seeing this and and UNICEF also it used to be that you'd see children taking UN ambassadors to their seats in the general Assembly and that was literally a, a you know seeing young people but not hearing them but but now, you see more and more that the youth representatives really do have a say in things, and even the Model United Nations. Some some countries, the MUNs, go to their governments with uh, policy suggestions, and in some countries, those suggestions are taken on board. Mm-hmm. So it's a process, and it's just going to keep on growing, I think. Uh, um, but it's a, you know, as with all marginalized groups, uh, the, the ones in power are reluctant to share that power. But I don't think they have a choice, really, because our society is changing. And if we say as a university that we're trying to prepare uh, future leaders to the best of our abilities, then they absolutely have to have intercultural skills and and know what it means to have a discussion with somebody that you disagree with and how to do that with respect.
0: Well, um, thank you very much for your availability for this interview. And what a pleasure.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Peace Corner. Interested in hearing more from us? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you might be listening.